Good evening, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Bible class. We're going to be studying together from Colossians chapter one. So if you would please grab your Bible, maybe even grab a shovel because we're gonna be digging together. Get it? Digging together in God's amazing word uh, this evening. Glad you're here. Glad more of you are coming on board. And I would also encourage you, if you got people around the house that watching TV, maybe sitting over somewhere texting folks, bring them to the cell phone, bring them to the computer screen, and let's, uh, let's do some growing together tonight by our study of the back half of Colossians chapter 1, a fascinating section of scripture. I have been so blessed by my own personal examination of these scriptures in the last few hours and actually the last few days. And I am just so anxious to share with you some things that I've discovered. And, and maybe you can also share back with me and our group some of your discoveries. There are some amazing principles that we're going to look at tonight that need to be embraced there are some great lessons, applications that we need to be putting to work in our daily lives. And I know that you'll pick up on a lot of these as we go through this text together. Again, I'm glad you're here. This is Wednesday night. It is a little after 6.30. It is time now for you and I to study with our family, with our friends, the amazing treasures that are found in God's word. Colossians chapter one, you got your Bible? Open it up. Colossians 1, got your family, got your friends around, hit the share button, please, because we want to share this study of the Word of God with as many people as we possibly can, okay? So you got buddies out there in Facebook world, they're scrolling right now, so hit that share button and maybe that will draw them in to a study that perhaps will change their lives, will certainly bless them as it's blessing us, but maybe even change their lives and eternal destination just by hitting the share button. God's word is just that powerful if you and I will be diligent in the planting of it. Before we actually get into our study, would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for giving us a great day. Thank you, Father, for giving us the opportunity, the privilege now to dig deeply into your will for our lives. Help us to notice some great treasures in the passage we're examining tonight. Help us to look for great lessons, applications that we will put to daily practice in our lives. Thank you, God, for all those that are here now or that will be joining us later as we study our Bibles. Bless those that are sick, those that are sad, those that are hurting, and help us to do what we can to be a blessing to those good folks. Father, also, we are so thankful that many of us will be able to come together in this facility Sunday morning, 9.30, to worship you. We pray, God, that we can do this in a way that will honor you, that we can do this in a way that will strengthen our souls. We also, Father, pray that we can do this in a way that will keep us our family, our community, safe, physically safe, physically healthy. Help us to use great wisdom in trying to determine if we should come and be a part of this assembly in person to person with others, or if we should remain home and worship online in, in the safety of that, uh, that environment. 
But, but again, God, we just thank you for the opportunity for some of us to come together and, and sing and pray and study and give and remember what Jesus has done. We're looking forward to Sunday. Thank you for that gift. And now we're looking forward to this study. Thank you for this gift. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Okay, Bible scholars, here's what I'm going to propose that we do tonight. I'm going to propose that we read together a section of scripture. Actually, the, the, the passage we'll be looking at is Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15 and going down to verse 23. So I'm suggesting that we read all of that together at the beginning of class. Then let's come back and, and kind of break it down into, into its smaller parts and think about the meaning of these words and phrases and how they relate to us today to help us in our journey toward heaven. So here it is, Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15. By the way, I said begin with 15. Can I just read, can I just read 13 and 14? It's so good. And we studied that last week, and that's where we finished our, our lesson. It just kind of sets the table for what we're going to look at tonight. So with your indulgence, verse 13 and following now. Colossians 1. He has delivered us, that's Jesus. He's delivered us, rescued us is another way of putting that, from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. We've been rescued. And so we, the rescuers, the, the rescued should become rescuers, right? We, the rescuers, are rescuers because we have been rescued. Does that make sense? This, this building collapses. And I'm not the only one here. We're using our imagination. Lots of other people here. This building collapses, okay? If there's anything to me at all, I climb out, make sure I still got 10 fingers and 10 toes, and then what do I do? I don't go uh, on a coffee break. I don't, I don't go home and relax. No, since God has rescued me from the rubble, it's my turn now to dig for others, to try to save and, and become a rescuer myself. And that's what Paul's encouraging the Colossian family to do. That's what he's by extension encouraging us to do. We have been rescued from darkness. We have been rescued from a, I mean, not to be too blunt about it, but from a demonic path. And now our privilege is to be appreciative, but also again, we that have been rescued should now become rescuers. Okay. Now he goes on to teach us here that he's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love, verse 14, in whom we have redemption. Where's the redemption found? Through his blood, comma, the forgiveness of sins. And this is why it is so important that you and I be baptized into Christ because that's where his blood is found that makes possible our redemption, our forgiveness from all our sins. Okay, now, that gets us to new territory this evening. Verse 15 of Colossians 1. Hope you have it. He, again, talking about Jesus, he is the image. You may want to underline the word image because we're going to come back to that idea. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, another word to underline, over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Notice these words, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, 
that might actually be four categories of, of angels that he's referencing here. You remember in our introduction to Colossians a couple of Wednesday nights ago, we're talking about how there were some folks in this city, in this congregation, who were maybe enamored with angels too much, even presuming to worship these created beings. And so Paul keeps getting back to that idea with them that that their, their special uh, beings, their special creations, but they're not worthy of our adoration. They're not worthy of our worship. That is reserved for Christ. And he's talking here about how Christ created these things. All things were created, notice, through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Verse 18, and he is the head, may want to underline that, head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, underline that word, the firstborn, underline firstborn from the dead, that in all things he, meaning Jesus, may have the, another word to underline, preeminence. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile, got to underline the word reconcile, reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood, got to underline this, blood of his cross. Verse 21, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled, that's our great word again, in the body of his flesh, may want to underline that phrase, his flesh, through death, notice, to present you holy, here's, here's the way Christ wants us to be, holy, blameless, above reproach, in his sight. If indeed, notice our responsibility, our privilege, continue in the faith. This is ongoing action, grounded and steadfast, and you are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. All right. There's a lot in there to dig through, to, to savor. So let, let's get right into it. And I want to ask you if you agree with, with this sentiment. Human beings is particularly our, our minds. Now, I'm not talking about every single human being. I'm just talking in general about we human beings. Our minds only think, as a general rule, as much as they have to think. Our minds only think as much as they have to think. You agree with that? What about this? That most human beings will only do what they have to do. Most human beings only do what they are required to do. Nothing more, nothing less. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about us. I'm talking about in general. We only think about the things that we have to think about. We only do the things that we absolutely have to do. And again, thinking more generally about created beings, we have a way, many of us, of getting really comfortable where we are. Some might even call that um, being lazy. We have a way of being satisfied with, with laziness, satisfied with being in what we would call a, a safe situation. 
where we we have this this idea in our minds that that I can I can reach a, a level of, of of minimum functioning. We call it just a minimum level of functioning, where I just figure out what is the the least I can do to get by. What is the, the least I can do? What is the minimum requirement for me to have a good life? What, what, is that, what is that line I need to get to? I want to get to that line. I don't want to be below that line. I don't want to be above that line uh, as a student. What, what do I have to do? How much homework do I need to do? How much studying do I need to do to please the teacher, keep my parents off the back, uh, to, to, to be able to graduate, to be a successful student? Uh, athlete may reason it the same way. What what is the the minimum I need to do to be a winner, to be effective in whatever sport I'm participating in? An employee might think, what is the what is the minimum I need to do in my job to keep getting a paycheck, to to not have the boss jump on me, and, and to be able to be comfortable in what I'm doing. Maybe even a spouse could could uh, reason reason about this uh, this way what what what's the minimum around the house that I need to do to keep her or him from being grouchy with me or, or getting aggravated in some way or, or a child may what what is the minimum I need to do in my room as far as keeping it clean to keep mom and dad happy what what is the minimum that I need to do as far as dishes and, and and other chores and and bedtimes and 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 what is the level of politeness that my parents expect what is the minimum i can get by with and, and be okay with them maybe even parent was would would reason what what's the minimum i need to do to raise good kids that'll love god and go to heaven i mean how many prayers do i need to pray how many devotionals how many bible classes do i need to bring them to how many uh, worship assemblies do I need to bring them to? What, what's, what's the minimum that, that I can do and, and be pretty comfortable knowing that my kids are going to be in heaven one day? And, and you see, for, for some people, this could even translate into Christianity. What, what, according to the Bible, I mean, help me figure this out. What, according to the Bible, do I need to do in order to not go to hell? To be able to make it somehow to heaven. I just want to get in. So just what, how many prayers do I need to pray? How many, how many pages of the Bible do I need to read? How, how bright does my light need to shine? And just show me where that line is, where I can get to a level where God is okay. The elders aren't on my back. The sermons don't always seem to be stepping on my toe. What is that level of function, minimum level of functioning that I can get to and, and be, be pleasing to God? In the book of Colossians, Paul is dealing with that kind of thinking. Uh, they, these folks are are needing to be pushed. Uh, they have their are you know there are three options, aren't there? Just makes sense to you. There are three options about where we are and and our movement or lack of movement we we can we can we can be right where we are safe place and we can be staying there or we can be going forward making progress getting more mature or we can be going in reverse and 
and, and regressing and, and becoming more immature and, and more fragile and, and more vulnerable to, to the devil. I'm not just talking about in spiritual circumstances, but, but in every situation of life, we find ourselves. I think you could, you could make that, that observation. We're either, we're either stuck right here, we're moving forward, or we're going backwards, right? And, 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 and challenging circumstances, like the one that we find ourselves in now with, with COVID-19 and the pandemic and the social distancing and not being able to come together and worship now for two months, at least physically in each other's presence. And, and some have suffered financially, some have suffered emotionally because of, of loneliness, and, and some have suffered obviously physically because of sickness that's been brought on by this. That, that when, when we're going through times like this, we're, we're being challenged, aren't we, to, to evaluate ourselves and, and to figure out, you know, how, how am I going to respond to this? And again, I've got three options. I can try to stay right where I am. I can go forward, make some progress here, or I can allow these circumstances to cause me to, to go into reverse. Now, how does all this apply again to the Colossians? Well, the, the Colossian folks were going in reverse in one very important area of their lives. And, and this letter was written to them in a sense to push them forward, not to stay where they were, not to keep going in reverse, but to push them to, to a better, to, to a higher level of thinking, and then obviously a higher level of functioning in Christ and for each other. You see, what, what they were, were going back into was something that was pretty common in that part of, of what is now Turkey, Asia Minor area. This this idea that that Jesus is really not all that special. He has some special features and was good in a lot of ways, but but he is not that important. I mentioned this at, at our first lesson. The idea was that, that Jesus is important, he's significant, but he's not that important. He's not that significant. And that kind of thinking was creeping into the congregation there, and it was causing the people to go in reverse. It was causing them, understandably, to move away from Christ. And, and Paul had to, as Barney Fife would say, he had to nip it. He had to nip that in the bud. And so we see a lot of that coming through in this letter to Colossians. We see a lot of that coming through the passages that, that we just read together. See, he's writing, dealing with a specific, real situation that was threatening the health of the church, threatening the existence of the church. And if this becomes like COVID-19, contagious and spreading, then it, it had the potential to disrupt, possibly even destroy the church, certainly throughout, throughout that region. And so, again, he's dealing with these people that in earlier lessons we, we referred to as, as Gnostics, comes from the word gnosis. Uh, it, it means to know. And, and the, these Gnostic folks who were rising up and having some influence back in the church here in the, in the city of Colossae, they were, they were folks who, who viewed themselves as intellectual types. Do you know, folks, like now there's nothing wrong with being intellectual. There's a lot being wrong with intellectual or thinking you're intellectual when you're not really 
so intellectual. We are not so bright. And what they were all about was, was trying to convince other people that we are the enlightened ones, that, that this book is not necessarily the path to greater knowledge, but if you'll just listen to us, if you'll listen to our form of, of theology, then, then you'll be more sophisticated and you'll be more satisfied and you'll be more accomplished as, as a spiritual person. And, and that, that was a, a mindset that was, for some reason, attractive to some of the folks back then. And, and we see that uh, even today, among some of, of the religious folks around us, that there is, there is almost um, an idolatry towards intellectualism, towards uh, uh, ultra-sophistication. That, that, that they believe maybe is not found in a more literal interpretation and application of the Word of God. That's why there are a lot of people who are religious that are now pursuing something that is newer than what they find in this book. They want something more electric, electric than what we find in this book. They want something more broad than the narrow that we find in this book. They want something more lenient than what we find here. They want something more entertaining than, than what the Bible offers. And, and they, they, they comport themselves, they present themselves as we are the enlightened ones. We are the people who have it figured out. You know, those old time ways and old time sermons and that first century emphasis and calling Bible things by Bible names and doing Bible things in Bible ways that's too rigid, that's, in, that's inhibiting, and we've got to, we got to break away from those, those chains of, of, um, of what, what would they refer to it, bondage, maybe legalism. And, and so they were, the, these people who have that mindset now, they are in a sense the ancestors of the Gnostic folks that, that Paul's dealing with here in this letter. Now, now, let's break down together some things that the these Gnostics believed, and let's think about how that affected their their religion, how it affected their Christianity or their lack of Christianity. And you'll see some some commonality with with uh, a similar brand of thinking today and what it ultimately leads to. But Gnostics basically believe that that matter, all matter, then have pens, but pen, pencil, cell phone, chair, floor that I just dropped the chair on, ceiling, trees, grass, flesh. They believed all this evil, evil. They believed that the spirit, that eternal part of us was good. Everything else though, dirty, polluted, vile. And something unique also, they, they believe somehow in their twisted way of reasoning that, that matter is eternal. And that matter, which is eternal, created other matter. It, it created the world. So they believe that if you believe like they did that all matter is evil and matter created the world, then they believe that the world was created by that which was evil. 
and and then naturally that explains their thinking of all this is dirty all this is filthy now we christians we don't believe that uh, matter created matter we we believe what the bible says that that god is the one that created matter that matter can't create matter that inanimate cannot create animate that you can't take something non-living and create living with that and you can't take something and make something else out of it if that original something doesn't have some some intelligence behind it doesn't have some life behind it and we understand from genesis 1 that god is the creator of all this but the gnostics would believe that that it wasn't god that it was something material out there evil bad that made all of this and it's interesting they they in their warp web thinking they have an explanation that that matter created matter but they don't have an explanation of where did that original blob pile <laughs> accumulation of matter come from where what caused that the everything that exists has a cause right watch okay i just caused this phone to drop and you understand the logic behind that and and so this world exists what caused the world to exist god god is the uncaused cause of all this and the gnostics they, they, they put themselves in a box and said no it wasn't god that caused this it was matter that caused this but what caused the matter they have they have no idea and and so that's why what we just read now it needed to be written it needed to be said by paul that, that god created the world we just saw that through christ that, that christ made all of this made all of us that means he's superior to all of this he is superior to all of us and it's interesting if you if you notice that that carefully as we went through it christ is both the agent of our creation and he's also the the object of our creation all the things that are created here he caused this to be and he is the reason that this exists that this is be to use terrible english there so christ is is so much more significant than these gnostics were were trying to to convince their neighbors right and and we want to convince our neighbors that jesus is the most significant he is tops he is supreme there, there's nothing even close to Christ. And one of the reasons that Christ is at the top is because everything that is below Christ is made by Christ. But these Gnostics, again, they, they kind of have the, the mentality that maybe many of your, your neighbors do, that Christ really isn't all that significant. And, and here's the way they'd reason this out in, in, in connecting it with Jesus, that, that since matter is evil, flesh is evil, our bodies are evil, then if Jesus came to this earth in a physical body, then he must also be evil. And they couldn't bring themselves to, to reach the position in their minds that Jesus was evil. So you know how they got around that? They, they did these mental gymnastics and they would take the position, well, then when Jesus was on earth, he was not he was not in a literal physical body. They believed that when Christ walked in the sand, that he left no footprints. 
They believe that when the sun came up behind Jesus, his body cast no shadow, that all of this was a completely spiritual thing. That's why when we just read from our selection of scripture tonight, especially verse 22, Paul's wanting these folks to understand Jesus not only divine, he is also in the flesh. And if he's in the flesh as son of God, as maker of all flesh, as maker of all this, that it is impossible for the flesh to be evil in and of itself. Flesh can do evil things, but the flesh is not by nature. It is not inherently evil. Okay? So that, that kind of sets the table for, for all of these motivations, for, for why Paul would just need to, need to just consistently pound this into the, the hard heads of these Gnostic folks that you've got to start valuing Jesus a whole lot more than you do. And you got to hush this nonsense about how Christ is important, but he's not supreme. The, the, the angels are on his level. Maybe some angels are even superior to him. And uh, that this, this body that we're in, it, it's a bad body. And so we shouldn't expect righteousness from it. You know, we, we tend to do what we believe we're capable of doing. And if you're a Gnostic kind of thinker, you're, you're thinking, well, I have a spirit inside of me that's pretty good, but it is imprisoned by a body that's pretty bad. So what am I going to do with my body? I'm going to do bad things. And, and it's the body doing the bad things. It's not the spirit. They're entirely separate entities. So my spirit is not going to be held accountable by what my evil body does. Does that give you a headache to even think about that? But that's a that's a modern view. Now, I've been using the word Gnostic, but I could be using the word neighbor because a lot of our neighbors of the religious world and of the non-religious world basically believe that, that they can live essentially any way they want to live, provided they don't break too many laws and they stay out of jail. Okay, that, that, that worship... That, that's optional, you know, um, doing unto others as we would like others to do unto us, that, that's optional, you know, giving as God has given to us, that's optional, Bible reading, praying to God, uh, telling people about Jesus, optional, 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 it's really, it's really not that important because they have a, a diminished view of Jesus Christ. And, and that's, that, that's why it's so important to, to grasp this. Don't, don't let me rock you to sleep here with all this, all this. I said, we're digging. And I want you to think about this phrase I asked you to underline in, in chapter one, verse 15, about how Jesus is the image of, of our God, of, of his father, of our invisible God. And did you know that if you dig deeply in that word image there, you see that it basically means the same thing as our English word, photograph. So it's like he's saying Jesus is a photograph of his father. He's a photograph of God. And to, to see what God is like, we just need to look at Jesus. See, God, in a sense, is, is beyond our field of vision. And so he sent Jesus here so we could understand so much more about not so much the appearance of God, but the, the nature of God, the, the desires of God, the, the heart of God. So if we want to see what God is like, 
We just simply look at Jesus as closely and as carefully and as frequently as we possibly can. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Trafalgar Square in London, England. It's a fascinating place, and there's this really tall pillar, a really tall post, like a pinnacle kind of thing. And at the very top of it, there is a statue of one of their great leaders, a fellow named Byron. They called him Lord Byron. And he was a great military hero, I think, that actually perished in the, in the Battle of Trafalgar. And, and I, I've actually been there on, on trips either back or, or from Ukraine. And, and this, this, this pillar, this post that Trafalgar statue is on, that, that uh, Byron's statue is on, is so high up there that you really can't make out much about the statue. You can't make out any of the, the details. So down below where you and I would be in Trafalgar Square, there is a replica. There is an image down here at eye level of what's up there. And so if we want to see what that's like, we look at what this is like that's next to us. We want to see what God is like way up there. We look at what Jesus was like when he was down here. Uh, maybe a a more familiar analogy of this would be if you, you've been to Washington, D.C., the Capitol building, on top of the Capitol building, there, there is a very impressive statue called the Statue of Freedom or the Freedom Statue or the Woman or Lady of Freedom. And uh, she's about, the statue is about, it's over 19 feet tall. Okay, it's a massive, impressive thing, but it's so high and so far, you really can't make out many of the details. But if you go into the visitor center of the Capitol building, then you see a replica. You see an image of what's up there. You see the, the details of this Native American appearing woman statue. So by being eye level with the image of what's up there, you get a better idea of what's up there. Again, when Jesus came here, he's giving us an eye level view of who's up there, a much better understanding of God. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, 9, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, here's a bonus. Are you staying with me? Now, wake up, wake up. Here, here's a bonus. So if we're, if we're seeing God, that means we're seeing Jesus. When we see Jesus, we understand what God is like. When we see God one day, we'll, we'll say, oh yeah, well, that's, that's how Jesus was when he was here. But here's the bonus point. When, when people see us now, they should also be seeing what Jesus is like and what the Father is like, right? We see Jesus, we understand what the Father's like. People see us and they should see what Jesus is like, okay? And that, that's, that's big time responsibility, that's almost pressure on us, isn't it? Because we're we're representing him. You know, maybe when you were a child, before you'd go somewhere, you know, your your parents might say, "Hey, remember who you are. Remember who you're representing out there." Well, whenever we go wherever it is we go, we're we're representing. If we're Christians, we're. I, I really wish, kind of an odd thought, but I really wish that we pronounce the word Christian as Christian, Christian, because. 
we're not followers of Christ, as we would pronounce it. We're, we're followers of Christ. We're, we're his ambassadors. We're his advertisement. We are to be his duplication. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be followers or imitators of me, even as I am imitator or follower of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, I'm an image of Jesus, and you want to be like Jesus, then be like me as I am like Christ. So again, Jesus came here so we would have a better picture, photograph of the Father. That's what that word image means there, remember, in verse 15. And, and so now Jesus has ascended up into the heavens, right? He's preparing heaven for us now, John 14. But he has left behind the church, his body, to show people how Jesus is, how he should be, how we should be. Make sense? Okay. All right. Then the next section here, he, he, he does some talking, Paul does these folks, about what Christ means to the church. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up the pace a little bit here now. Four facts about the church and, and Jesus' relationship to the church. Number one, he's the head of the church. Number two, he's the beginning of the church. Number three, he's the firstborn from the dead connected with the church. And then number four, he is supreme. He's tops. Again, the idea of head. He, he's above the church. Okay. So he's the head. What's the head do for the body? Head directs the body. Head guides the body. Where do we get our direction? It can't be from, from our neighbor. It can't be from our parents. It can't be from, from our whims, our opinions, our ideas, our philosophies, our thoughts, our beliefs. It, it's got to be, uh, battery is giving me trouble again. Let me push something here. It, it's got to be from the word of God. Now, can, can our, can our parents guide us? Can a preacher guide us? Can they, yeah, but we got to make sure it's consistent with what we're getting from the word of God. And the word of God is directing us to Jesus as the head. He is our director. He is the, 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 the author and finisher of our faith, according to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And, and, and in the original there, that means he is the pioneer. He's the trailblazer. He went first. He got the cobwebs out of our way. He, he, he cleared the path to make it easier for us to follow. So which way do we go? We go the way of Jesus. We can't go to the left of that, to the right of that. We don't want to get ahead of Jesus. We don't want to lay too far in back of Jesus. We want to keep up with Jesus Christ. He is the head. Have you noticed that if, if your head goes into the, the bedroom, the body's got to go there? Right. I mean, where if your head goes to Walmart, your body's going to Walmart. OK, so Jesus is our head. We, we follow him. Where did he go? He went to the house of worship. That was his custom. He went into the waters of baptism to fulfill all righteousness. We follow that head into the waters to be cleansed of our unrighteousness. He went to the he went to the garden of suffering. Sometimes we got to suffer. He went to the, the valley of prayer. He went to the. Ultimately, he went into the tomb. We're going to go into it. He went to the cross of suffering. We're sometimes going to be called upon to suffer. He ultimately ascended from the grave and approaches now and is with the throne of God. And, and we follow him there. Again, wherever the head goes, the body goes. So he's the head of the church. He's the head of us. He's also, according to what we read, he's the beginning of us. He's the beginning of the church. Kind of like A is the beginning of the alphabet and one is the beginning of a series of numbers. As A is to the alphabet, as one is to numbers, Jesus is to his church. He is our beginning. He's a source of our life. Number three, we notice there in the text, Jesus is firstborn of the dead. In other words, he is the first to be resurrected, to never die again. 
Our hero, Christ, is not a dead hero. His tomb is empty. That's unlike any other religious movement. All their founders are dead. Are dead. If we could find those tombs, we'd find evidence of those bodies. We'd find something of their DNA, something of their bones. You go to the tomb of Jesus, it is empty. Our hero is alive. He is resurrected. And then, fourth thing, he is supreme. He's tops. He is the one who has earned by creating us and dying for us. He's earned that position. He, he deserves that. Now, he also, Paul, what we've read, he talks about what Christ means to all creation, talks about the object or the reason of his, of his coming. 19 and 20 of the verses I'm thinking about now. Re review those in your mind. Maybe even look at them with your eyes for just a moment. And you see that word, ask it underlined, reconcile or reconciliation. That's why Christ came. The word reconcile means to make friends again. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, our sins separated us from God. That there, there's a gap. There's a, how do you pronounce the word? Chasm or chasm? There's an empty place between us and the Father. And Jesus came to build the bridge there to, to get us back to God, back to that place that we never should have abandoned. Now, in our Bibles, when we're thinking about reconciliation and, and the teachings of that important dynamic, or that important event that needs to happen, it is never God being reconciled to us. It is us being reconciled to God. God didn't leave us. We left him. And so therefore, we're, since we're the ones that moved away, it's natural to understand that we're the ones that need to move back. The instrument then, the means of this reconciliation, according to what we just read, is the blood of Jesus. Through the blood, we have reconciliation. And that kind of love that, that Jesus had for us that, that required him, caused him, obligated him to go to the cross, to, to die for us, that kind of enormous compassion he has for us requires, demands from us an answering kind of love. Uh, see, if, if, the, if the cross doesn't awaken in us our love for Jesus, what will? Fear of going to hell? Desire to be in heaven? I mean, those can be some somewhat motivational, but it's not a it's not a lasting motivation. It must be love. It must be a response, an answering love to Jesus, amazing love for us. And then he ends this section that we read earlier by talking about reconciling heaven, something in heaven, to 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 what? To the Father, to himself, to us. And and this is this is quite mysterious. So as we're wrapping up, let me share with you you some ideas about this. Okay, so how would heaven need to be reconciled? Why would heaven need to be reconciled? Well, some people suggest he's talking about angels up there sinning and not necessarily in the past, but right now. Job 4.18 says angels, he charges with error, depending on your translation. Job 15.15 says the heavens are not clean in his sight. And some people think that Job's talking about something then and something continuing even now. And, and Jesus needed to come and reconcile those sinning angels back to the Father. And then a number two idea is, is not that it's an ongoing thing with, with sinning angels, but it's something going back to the devil and the angels long ago when there was a rebellion and, and how they need reconciling 
to, to God. Now, neither of those first two theories make a lot of sense to me. Uh, a, a third possibility of what he's talking about in, in this idea of reconciling heaven to God is it just means that all heaven, all creation, all the earth is a part of this ministry of reconciliation. It's just a figure of speech to say this reconciliation is a really big thing encompassing all of heaven, encompassing all of created earth below the heavens, right? Sometimes I will say in a sermon for dramatic effect, I will say all creation now is longing for us to come to the Father to make a life-changing decision, okay? But I'm speaking there in, in those terms because it's, it's the bigness of it. it. It is the stupendousness of it, okay? It is the importance of it that all creation is, is depending on this and needing this to happen. So step up and let's do the right thing. But I don't literally mean that all creation is longing for our repentance or our coming. A snail is a part of the creation. I'm not thinking that a snail is waiting for us to repent. It's just the idea of the bigness of it. And maybe that's what Paul's talking about here, that all heaven and all earth and all creation is participating in our reconciliation to the Father. And a fourth kind of wild out there theory about what he's talking about when he says that, that heaven needs to be reconciled is that not, not the, the angels need to be reconciled to God, but the angels need to be made friends again and reconciled with humanity, that the angels just got really aggravated at we people because we're sinful and, and they're disappointed in us. And, and Christ is somehow making reconciliation between us and these angels who, as Hebrews says, they're ministering spirits sent by God to, to serve and to, and to help us in some way. So again, we don't know. I said all that to say, we don't know what he's talking about there when he says heaven needs to be reconciled. But I'm confident that the first readers who were in the city of Colossae, they understood it and maybe when we get to heaven, we can ask them, what does that phrase mean? But here's the, in summation, in, in dramatic conclusion now of our study of this important text, the main point to get from all this is Jesus came to planet earth to show us his father and to show us how we are to be, and to reconcile, to make us friends again with God. And this is an ongoing work. Our, our, our reconciliation to God is a continuous action. We're to keep moving every day in the direction of God. Getting back to the initial point, we're either where we are now, or we're moving forward, or we're moving backwards. What animal do you know of needs to keep moving to have life? Are you thinking of a shark? Is a shark an animal? It's got to keep swimming because that water passes through its lungs in some way and gives its oxygen the ability to exist. If it stops moving, that shark is going to die. But a shark's not the only created being that's got to keep moving in order to have life. Every living thing must move to live. Every Christian, every follower of Jesus must keep moving towards the Father in order to have life, in order to have forgiveness from the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be steadfast. Remember that? Unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord so that you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And that's at the conclusion of the resurrection chapter because Jesus lives because he moved up out of the tomb. We need to keep moving now. We've come out of the, our tomb of baptism 
And, and we're now walking in newness of life. We're not sitting in newness of life. We're not standing in newness of life. We're walking. We're making pro We're walking in the light. We're moving forward every day. So let us keep moving. Let us keep getting closer and closer to God, being thankful for the life that he's given us to enjoy here on planet Earth. Don't be like a Gnostic. Don't be like one of these super intellectuals that we're, we're superior to the old common thinking that we need God, that we need the word of God, we need to worship God. Hey, we need God. We need to worship God. We need to love God. We need to read this book. We need to have great communication with our Father every day. Okay, I love you. Thanks for being a part of our study. Let's cover up again, 9.30 Sunday morning in this facility. If you're physically able, come and worship with us. If it's unwise for you to be here and worship, please be sure to worship with us online. Be sure to share this, share that worship on Sunday morning. I love you. I appreciate you. Now, usually we'd have pop later on tonight at nine o'clock and pray for a lot of good folks, but I got to make a lot of special deliveries to some special members of our church family. I'm not sure I'm going to get done by nine o'clock. So if you don't see me then, you'll know I'm out trying to keep moving. Christian Shark over here trying to do good to, to be a blessing. I love you. I appreciate you. Thanks for being a part of our study of Colossians chapter one, the back part this evening together. Take care. God bless you.